You know, we've seen in the Gospel of John that it's full of these questions. Questions uh, that seem simple on their surface. John the Baptist asked, uh, is asked, who are you? Which opens up this question about identity that goes much deeper. And now uh, this man is asked the question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? It's a simple question on the surface of it. It almost seems like a rhetorical question. But it's a deep question. If you allow yourself to really wrestle with it, if you follow it all the way down and really ask of yourself and hear Jesus asking to you, do you really want to be healed? I think we'll see that simply being here in a church is not a guarantee that you actually want to be healed. Even being uh, in a recovery program like is housed here is not a guarantee that truly at a heart level uh, that you want to be truly healed uh, in the way that Jesus heals us. And so if we have the courage uh, today to ask ourselves this question, to follow this question, to wrestle with this question, I think it has a real capacity to expose us and to change us for the better. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we admit that sometimes uh, we don't really want to be healed if it means leaving what we know, if it means leaving what is comfortable, if it means leaving what's familiar. Lord Jesus, our illness wrecks us, our sin wrecks us, and yet uh, it's what we know, and so often we are so comfortable in it. So Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come to your word that you would ask this question of each of us, and that by your spirit uh, you would apply it to our hearts, that you would probe us, search us, and know us, Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I had uh, a great-grandmother who lived to be 103 years old. It's a long time to live. She lived to be 103. Uh, She died when I was still uh, quite young, so I really only knew her uh, as an older woman. Uh, My only memories of seeing my Meemaw Uh, was going to visit her in what at the time we called an old folks home, but I am pretty sure we're not allowed to call that anymore. Uh, But we would go and visit her in her assisted living facility. Um, And I remember as a boy very, very vividly the anxiety I felt uh, going to visit her there. I remember uh, walking through the halls and seeing people uh, pushed out in their wheelchairs who would just be sitting there. I remember some of them, uh, those who could, of course, love to see a little boy there and would come and try to pinch my cheek and rub my hair and do all that. Others were unable to engage and I didn't know how to, how to interact with them. I think more than anything, what I remember about that place, if I'm honest, is the smell. Um, the smell of ailing humanity, the smell of uh, cleaning supplies used to cover that smell, and just the way that it all piled up. You know, if I'm honest, and this is, I say this with some shame, as a little boy, I hated uh, going to this place. I hated uh, getting dragged out on a Saturday uh, to go there. And you know, I wouldn't have had the ability to articulate it this way at the time, but I know now what I, what I didn't like about going there, what made me uncomfortable about going there, was that there I was exposed to an element of our broken and fallen world that through most of my life I, was, I could avoid. Uh, throughout most of my life I was protected from. You know, we know from the, the stories of Genesis that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our bodies are not supposed to grow frail and old and break down and die. And so normally through most of my days as a young boy, I was protected from that reality of life in a fallen world. But there in those moments to go visit Meemaw, it was, it was all around me. 
You know, it's true that our world is broken, and it's completely broken. Uh, There is no part of our world, there is no community safe or exempt from the brokenness and illness of our world. But still, we try, when we're able to, to distance ourselves from what's broken and uncomfortable about our world. The young separate themselves from the old, the healthy separate themselves from the sick, the rich and the privileged separate themselves from the poor and the disadvantaged, right? The very geography of our cities bears that out, right? We know that we can't do it, right? We know that there are just as many broken lives and fractured families behind the gates of luxury suburbs as there are under the broken street lamps of the inner city. We know that, that you can't keep out the brokenness of the world, but we try really hard to separate ourselves from it. And our story today starts when Jesus goes to just such a place, a place in uh, contemporary, his contemporary Jerusalem that was one of these places of concentrated brokenness. We're, we're, we're told that uh, it was a place called Bethesda, the, which literally means the house of mercy, which is by the sheep gate, a place where uh, farmers and ranchers bringing their sheep into market would pass through the gates, but there there was a pool or maybe they would stop to water their sheep. But it was a pool that was surrounded by porches, and around that, we're told, gathered a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. This is a part of the city uh, where the, the broken gathered. It was a part of the city uh, where they believed that, uh, if you notice in your, in your Bible, Uh, It goes straight, most of your Bibles probably go straight from verse 3 to verse 5 and don't include a verse 4. It's because what's, uh, in many translations, in many older translations, what was kept as verse 4, most scholars think now wasn't in the the earliest and best manuscripts of John, but that it does capture uh, the culture of the time. And what verse 4, the lost verse 4, says is that the, the, the invalids, the, the blind, the crippled, and the lame, gathered around this pool because they believed that when the water was stirred, when, the, when all of a sudden there was a ripple in the water, they believed it was because an angel had touched the water and they would all rush to get into the water because they believed that the first one into the water would be healed. Right? You can imagine the scene of these uh, poor and broken people in body and mind around the pool and all of a sudden, maybe it's just a stiff breeze, that comes along, maybe a leaf falls into the pool and causes a ripple. And all of a sudden, the blind go groping, trying to fight, feel their way into the pool. The, uh, the lame go limping. The paralyzed perhaps get dragged and thrown. But they all, there's this mad dash of humanity into the pool, hoping against hope that maybe the first person in would be healed. Yes, it's superstition. Uh, yes, you can look at it and go, what a silly thing to believe. But it's true, isn't it, that when you have little hope, any silly hope will do. And so there, there was this, uh, they were holding out any hope in a world without medical, really, resources to deal with their conditions. This old wives' tale about stirred up water and the first one in kept them coming back to this place again and again and again. And so in this place of brokenness and superstition, Jesus walks Jesus heads deliberately to this part of the city, to this part of Jerusalem that most people who could would have avoided. Jesus heads right towards it. Jesus always moves towards the brokenness of this world. 
the parts of this world that the rest of us would rather avoid, Jesus always, always, always walks right towards. This is Jesus' second time in Jerusalem. We're told that he's there for a feast. Probably, although we're not told, probably it's his second Passover. The first time he goes to the temple to worship. And here, before he goes to the temple, before he goes to celebrate the feast, he goes to this place, this abandoned place of concentrated pain and brokenness. You know, this is uh, a profound statement about the nature of Jesus and the nature of his ministry, that Jesus always moves towards the broken places of our world, right? He tells us elsewhere that his mission, when he's explaining his mission, he says that uh, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but to heal sinners. And so here Jesus comes to the broken. You know, it's true that if you want to meet Jesus, If you want to meet Jesus, you cannot run from the broken places, either in the world or in your own life, in your own heart, right? The places of the world that we choose to avoid, the places of our own lives, the places of of sin, the places of addiction, the places of doubt and unbelief, the places of pride and anger, those places, the places that we avoid, the places that we'd rather not go, the places of our wounding and our brokenness that we'd rather not look at. To avoid them is actually to avoid Jesus because Jesus comes for the broken. It's, it'd be silly if it wasn't so sad that human beings and maybe Christians in particular spend so much of our time avoiding our illness and avoiding our brokenness, pretending and separating ourselves, pretending that what's, what's sick and what's broken is out there somewhere outside the walls of the church. But if we miss our illness, if we miss our brokenness, we miss Jesus. Because Jesus is always, always, always moving towards the broken. And if you want to meet the healer, uh, you have to admit that you're broken, that you're sick, that you need the touch of the doctor. But, you know, it's one thing to meet the healer. It's another thing to be healed. It's another thing to be impacted, to be changed uh, from that encounter. And so Jesus uh, comes in to, uh, to Bethesda, to the Sheep Gate, to this place where he's surrounded by people broken in body and in mind. And he walks up to one man in particular, a man that we're told had been uh, paralyzed for 38 years. For 38 years, he'd borne uh, this brokenness in his body. We don't know how long he'd been coming there, although we know it's been a long time. We don't know if it's been all 38 years. But we know that he was a regular around this pool, that he was somebody who came there often. And Jesus walks up to him and he asks, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? You know, on one level, uh, this seems like such a simple and obvious question. (laughs) Jesus, you're... For 38 years, I've been paralyzed. For 38 years, I've been coming and bringing, you know, my friends maybe or have been carting my, my body to this place or maybe I just sleep here. But for 38 years, I've been coming with all these other blind and crippled folks laying around this pool hoping that some angel touches it, believing some old wives' tale. And you're gonna ask me if I want to be healed? Are you being cruel, Jesus? Why are you asking? On one level, it seems so completely and utterly obvious. But on another level, it is not nearly 
this obvious. You know, my knowledge of just my own life tells me that this question isn't that simple. My, my pastoral knowledge of the people that I've worked with and counseled and pastored over the years uh, tells me that this question is not that obvious. But so often at a deep level, we really don't want to be healed. We really don't want to change, to leave behind uh, the sin that weighs us down and breaks us. You know, the first step to healing, the first step to a life of healing is always admitting that you're sick. It's always admitting that you're ill and that you're powerless over your illness, powerless over this brokenness in your life. And yet we hate, hate, hate uh, to admit that about ourselves. You know, uh, one of the things uh, that I think is important about John 5 is that it, that it follows John 4. You are, you are welcome for that bit of exegetical brilliance. John 5 follows John 4. What happens in John 4? Jesus uh, goes to Samaria. He goes and meets, remember, the woman at the well. And there he says to her uh, that he offers her living water. If you remember, we talked about how he's, he's touching on Jeremiah chapter 2, where God, speaking to his people, says, I, your, your sin is this, that you've abandoned me, the source of living water, and have hewn out for yourselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. These, these empty, leaking sources of life that we make for ourselves that cannot ultimately satisfy us. And so, as we look at John 4, we go, yes, of course, We should leave our broken cisterns. We should leave these addictions and these appetites and these things that we go to to give us life. We should leave those things and go to the source of living water. But then we come to John 5 and we meet this man and he's asked, do you want to be healed? And we're reminded of the fact that sometimes we really don't want to leave our broken cisterns. Sometimes we really don't want to leave behind our old ways of life, the old ways of doing things. Right, I'm reminded of Israel when they were, uh, they were set free from slavery in Egypt and led into the wilderness where they were miraculously fed, right, from, from miraculously flowing water from a rock with manna, bread raining down on them from heaven, right, doves literally falling out of the sky for them to eat. And yet there in the wilderness, it says they grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses who led them out and they said, maybe we should go back to Egypt. Because at least, yeah, okay, sure. Right, in Egypt, yes, we were slaves. But we, we had meat to eat at every meal. We knew we were going to get three meals a day. Right, maybe we should abandon this journey towards freedom, this journey towards an inheritance, this journey with God, and go back to a comfortable and known way of life. Yes, it was slavery. Yes, we weren't free. But we knew what it was, and it was comfortable. And some of us don't uh, want to be healed because, if we're honest, we're comfortable uh, in our illness. It's, we may not love it, but it's all, uh, it's all that we know. For others of us, you know, there's other barriers that keep us from answering this question. Yes, of course I want to be healed. Right? And we see that some of us, uh, like the man in this story, I think we see this really clearly here. Uh, some of us are unwilling to admit Uh, that the illness and the problem in our lives is really primarily with us and not with other people, right? And so we justify ourselves and we blame others 
uh, for the suffering and the pain and the brokenness of our lives. Look at the way that, Je- that, uh, that this man replies to Jesus. Do you want to be healed? He says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. You, you can almost hear the self-pity in his voice. Saying, right, look, you know, the blind people, it may take them a while to get to the pool, but they're going to get there. Right, the lame, they may limp there, but they've got a chance. I don't have legs that work. And aside from that, my friends are nowhere to be found. Right, other people might have people that are sitting there just waiting with them to help them along the way, to help them towards this healing. But look, I've got no one. My body doesn't work. And everyone who would love me has abandoned me. And they've left me here. And so I've got no one. You can hear his self-pity. You can hear the contempt and the blame in his voice towards the other people that he thinks should be helping him but aren't. You know, listen, some of us uh, in this room, some of us have been wounded and hurt deeply by other people, right? And that is worth acknowledging, that is worth processing, that is worth mourning and lamenting. That we have been in a broken world one of our problems, you know, one of our problems is that we're surrounded by sinners and sinners sin against us and they hurt us. They neglect us. They abuse us. They wound us. They betray us. And so some of our brokenness is from other people, but, but the scriptures never leave us simply as victims of other people's sin, right? It always asks us to go deeper and says, you know what? You are never simply a victim. Right? You're, you might have been victimized. You might have been wounded. But more than that, you are a, a human being who bears the image of God. Right? And yes, that image is distorted and broken by the sin of others, but it's also distorted and broken by your own sin. It's distorted and broken by the, the wickedness of your own heart, not simply the ways that you've been broken and wounded, but the sinful ways you've responded, the ways that you've hurt others, the ways that you've abandoned God. And of those two things, of, of the ways that others have sinned against you and the sin in your own heart, there's only one of those things that has the power to ultimately destroy you. There's only one of those things uh, for which you have to ultimately give an account before God. Right? It's the sin of your own life. It's the sin of your own heart. And we can so uh, distance ourselves from it. We can so make excuses for it. We can so blame others for it that it keeps us from ever going to Jesus and going to God and saying, you know what, even if, even if some large percentage of the issues in my life are, account, are, are coming from other people, there is a core of it that I have no one to blame but myself. And the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And I need healing. So some of us uh, avoid healing by blaming others and pitying ourselves. And then just one last thing I want us to look at. Some of us avoid uh, the possibility of real healing uh, because of the nasty problem of religious legalism. You know, this comes up in the story. After the man's healed, he picks up his mat and he walks. Picks up the mat that he had been laying on and walks. And the religious leaders, the religious authorities, the Pharisees come after him and say, hey, don't you know that it's not lawful to carry a mat on the Sabbath? Right, so here's uh, the, the, the fundamental sin of the Pharisees of Jesus' day was not that they took God's law seriously, right? That is something that, that we should all do. 
Their problem was that they took God's law, the thing God commanded, that, they, that we honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they put up what by, what by Jesus' times were literally hundreds of other laws around the Sabbath to make sure that not only did people not break it, that people came not even close to breaking it. Right? If the speed limit was 60, they said we should probably go 30 just to be, just to be safe. And so they put all these rules around the Sabbath, including what kinds of loads you could carry and what you couldn't carry. What you could, you know, you could pick up a piece of paper because it wasn't so light, but to carry something over a certain amount of weight was work and you shouldn't do that. And so when they saw this man carrying his mat, they said, Sabbath breaker, and their alarms went off. And the way that legalism shortcuts healing is that legalism is basically the religious way to say that healing is neither possible nor necessary. It's saying that, that, okay, look, we know people don't really change. We know that people's hearts don't really regenerate from the inside out. And so instead, we're going to try to change people from the outside in. If we can't change the heart, we're just going to give these black-hearted sinners some rules to obey so that they're a little bit better. Because we really don't believe that real change is possible, right? We don't believe that real change is necessary. So we just say, you know what? Change your behavior, change the outside, learn to do things better, to act better, to follow God more. And then you'll, that, that's all you can hope for. And if, if that's the way that you approach God from a, with an outside in, I'm gonna keep the rules and change myself. You can never ever change yourself you'll realize that real change can't come from the outside in, that it has to come from the inside out. And it can only happen. We are absolutely, utterly powerless to heal ourselves. So if you want to live a life of deep healing, of deep change, it starts by admitting that you're powerless to heal yourself and you need to meet the healer. And that's what this man does. He, he, he meets Jesus and Jesus says a word. He just commands him. Three things, three verbs. Get up, take your, mat, take your bed, and walk. And he does. Jesus' word is powerful, and it heals him. You know, I've got a, I've got a confession to make. I've spent uh, a couple of weeks with this guy, uh, with the guy by the pool, uh, thinking about this sermon, thinking about this passage. And my confession is that I don't like this guy very much. Uh, I've tried uh, I've tried to put myself in his shoes. I've tried to understand his, his situation. But the man by the pool uh, is a fairly miserable guy. And he is a hard guy to like. Right? When Jesus first comes to him and asks, do you want to be well? What does he do? He blames others and whines about it. This man who receives this miraculous healing when surrounded by another throng of people, all of whom would have wanted healing, Amen. he gets it. And he doesn't even know who healed him. Right? This wasn't because of some, uh, some act of faith on this guy's part. Right? When, the, when the religious leaders say, who healed you? He said, I don't know. Some, some guy came up, asked me if I wanted to be healed, said, get up, take your mat. I did. I don't know who healed me. Right? If you think about that long enough, that will get under your skin. When I think about the men and women that I have known on hospital beds and deathbeds who know Jesus profoundly, who know Jesus and who, who ask him by name for healing and die and are not healed. And then I think about this guy 
who didn't know who Jesus was, didn't even really believe that he could heal him. And and Jesus heals this guy? This is absolute, unearned grace. This is grace for somebody who is so far from deserving it, from somebody who's so far from faith. I think this man's story is in the Bible so that we know that even faith isn't a good work that we can do to earn Jesus' healing of us. Right, that even faith isn't something that is in and of ourselves. But that this guy stuck there, not even knowing who Jesus was, receives healing. Well, I further don't like this guy because when he does uh, finally learn who Jesus is, he goes immediately to the religious authorities and says it was Jesus. Right, he's the first one in the gospels to betray Jesus. He's the first one in the Gospels to hand Jesus over towards those who would, who would hate him, who would persecute him, who would ultimately kill him. Right? This is a man that when he, when he says, uh, when he's asked who healed you uh, by the religious leaders, and he said, I don't know, uh, but this other guy told me, the man who healed me, that man said to me, it's the same guy. Right? You hear the same tone in his voice that's blaming others for his illness is now blaming somebody else for his healing. Right? He's still this others-blaming, faithless guy. And so we don't really know. We don't really know how deep the healing goes in this man's life. Right? Jesus tells him, when, when Jesus recognizes him in the temple, he was a religious man, he goes to the temple. Afterward, Jesus sees him and says, See, you are well. Sin no more that, so, that nothing worse may happen to you. Right, what Jesus is saying, he's not equating sin to illness in a one-to-one way. In fact, elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he tells us that a blind man isn't blind because he or his parents sinned. It's just because of a broken world. But what he is saying, he says, look, I've healed your body, but you have a far deeper problem. And I can help you with that too. I can actually heal you on the deepest imaginable level. You can walk away from sin. But will you? Will you? Will you settle for a superficial healing? for a mere healing of your body? Or will you embrace me? Will you turn towards me in faith and receive the healing of your soul? You know, the first step is always to admit our illness and our powerlessness over it. But the second step is always to turn towards Jesus and to embrace him and all of his goodness and power and grace. You know, uh, the gospel of John, uh, the language that Jesus uses for this is to abide in Christ. It's to take hold of Jesus. It's to live with him and to walk with him. You know, ultimately, what we need more than healing is him, right? What we need more than for our problems to be done away with, even for our addictions to be broken and our bodies to be made whole and all of those things, what we need more than that is Jesus himself. It's to know him and to live with him by faith. And ultimately, I think in this passage, it's an open question as to whether or not uh, this man ever does. And so we turn from our illness, we embrace the goodness of Jesus by faith. Then the the last element of this life of healing is to walk in this way and to do it again and again and again. Is to live a life where we acknowledge our illness and turn to our Savior. This is what Jesus calls him to when he says, See, you are well. Now sin no more. Right? This is repentance. 
the, the, the Bible word for it. It's turning away from your illness, turning away from your sin, turning away from your rebellion against God and turning towards Jesus, acknowledging that he's better, acknowledging uh, your need for him again and again and again, living a life uh, that's repentant, that's turning away from sin. You know, I love the order here. You have been healed. Now go and sin no more. Or, you know, it, it, it's always the case in the Bible that grace precedes our obedience. That grace precedes our sin no more. Right? The Ten Commandments start out with, I am the Lord your God who's led you out of the land of Egypt. Right? Grace precedes have no other gods before me, keep all of the commandments. That God's grace always precedes and motivates are following after him, are seeking to leave a life of sin. And that, that walk of repentance, that walk in healing, is a difficult walk. It's hard. Sometimes it, it doesn't feel like we're making any progress in it at all, does it? It feels like uh, the old illness, the old sin, just continues to entangle us and weigh us down and burden us. But the hope of this passage, the hope of the gospel, is that God's work in you, his healing of you, will reach its completion. That Jesus will heal you totally. Look at what he says in verse 17. They come to Jesus uh, inquiring about his Sabbath breaking, his healing a man on the Sabbath. And he says to them, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. What Jesus is seizing on here is there was a, um, there's an interpretation, a biblical interpretation of the, the creation week that says that God worked for six days and then on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, he rested. Right? That's one of the motivations that, that's given to God's people to keep the command of the Sabbath is that God worked for six days, but now he's resting. And Jesus is saying, no, actually God is working. That God, yes, he's done his creation work, and he rested. But now God is doing a recreation work in the world. That through Jesus, through this healing, like, th like this man's, and ultimately through the cross and through the resurrection, that Jesus is healing the world. That God the Father is working. And so Jesus is working. Jesus is joining him in the work of mending a broken world. But one day, Jesus will rest. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus at the right hand of the Father sits down and rests. And one day we too will rest. One day, whole and complete in Christ, we'll cease working. We'll cease working out this healing. And it will be finished in us. We'll be as whole and as holy and as new as we were created to be through the healing power of Jesus. And it cannot be stopped. The word of Jesus heals this man the moment it's spoken. Right? The word of the gospel heals us and forgives us the moment that we take hold of it by faith. And it will utterly and completely heal us. You know, there's a story about an old minister uh, in England who went on a, a vacation to Italy. And as you do when you're in Italy, he was uh, touring old churches and graveyards and there in Italy, he, he came upon the grave of a man uh, who was not a Christian, uh, who was deeply suspicious of the Christian faith, who disbelieved the resurrection. 
And so committed was this man uh, to his unbelief that when he was buried, he asked that a stone slab be laid on top of the ground under which he was buried. Because if there was to be a resurrection, he wanted no part of it. He, He had inscribed on this concrete slab that laid over him in Italian, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. And the minister tells the story that evidently, this is hundreds of years later, uh, evidently an acorn had fallen uh, at some point and taken root, and it had grown up uh, under the slab such that the slab was completely broken and cracked in two. Broken slab uh, there saying, I do not want to be resurrected. And the, the application that the minister makes, he says, if an acorn, this tiny thing that has the power of biological life in it, has the power to break this granite slab. How much more does the Spirit of God, which has in it the, power, the very power of divine life, have the power to bring resurrection and new life into our broken hearts and bodies? Right. If that little acorn can break a stone slab, the Spirit of God, which comes into every believer, when they're united to Christ by faith, how much more does it have the power to break every granite slab in your life? The hard slabs of addiction and sin and pride and arrogance and lust and unbelief, every single one of them will be broken by the power of the Spirit. We may experience and we will experience substantial healing in this life. We will make progress. And one day that healing will be complete when we stand in new bodies before the resurrected Jesus.